Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Liberal Fix Radio. It is Friday, September 4th, 2015, and I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana. And uh, today we will have a encore presentation, an interview with Mike McCabe, uh, who wrote the uh, book Blue, Blue, Blue G Nation. And so that should be an interesting uh, interview. He's from Wisconsin and, and uh, very involved in progressive politics and has some projects going on. We did this interview earlier this year, but we're doing a repeat broadcast of it. But I will uh, talk a little before it and let you know also what's coming up. Um, we've juggled our schedule around a little bit, so um, uh the episodes coming forthcoming might be on different dates than we originally announced. But uh, next week we will have on John B. Diamond, who is the author of Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. Um, so that should be very interesting. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but by the time I interview next week, I should have a read. I do have a copy with me. And uh, the following week, uh, on September 18th, we will have on James Kilgore, who's author of Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. So looking forward to that one as well. Um, as far as uh, news today, I suppose uh, you heard that uh, in Rowan County, Kentucky, finally um, same-sex couples are getting their marriage licenses because with Kim Davis in jail, at least for the time being, her uh, second in command, if you will, or, or the other county clerks there, Brian Mason, who is the deputy clerk, um, gave marriage licenses today to at least a couple couples. And so congratulations to those couples for getting their licenses. And uh, thank you, Mr. Mason, for doing your job. Um, certainly much appreciated. And so that's exciting. Um, before we get to the interview, I, I suppose the two other things I was going to mention. One, I'm sure most of you are aware, but it uh, looks like the Iran deal will have the votes um, so that uh, it survives Congress, so that it won't be um, vetoed or the president has the power to override that. I think he needed 34 votes, and Barbara Mikulski of Maryland got him to that total. I believe today that total has risen to 38, and if they can get it up into the 40s high enough, maybe the point where they can even filibuster the Senate from even passing something to oppose it to begin with. But, We'll see how that plays out. Um, the other development I thought I would point out, just a little bit of polling information, and um, this is mostly for amusement, but, but I, I found it entertaining. Uh, uh, this week a Monmouth survey came out, a poll from Monmouth University of the National uh, Republican field, and of course, to no surprise, uh, Donald Trump continues to lead with uh, 30% of the vote, um, uh, retired neurosurgeon Ben Carson is right behind him at 18%. So these two political outsiders who really have a lot of uh, uh, crazy and outlandish bigoted ideas are, are running first and second. Um, but, but what I found uh, particularly amusing about the poll was uh, if you take Donald Trump's 30%, he is running ahead of the five Coke, what I call the Coke puppet candidates, uh, in that um, at the beginning of August, the Charles and David Koch and a bunch of other millionaires had their little 
uh, confab of wealthy donors uh, in Southern California that met. And uh, Scott Walker came out on the top on their little straw poll. But these are the five people that the Koch brothers uh, invited because they they consider them, you know, the the candidates they want to do their bidding or, you know, and of course the candidates groveled before the Koch brothers for their money. And those candidates, uh, as you're probably aware, are Jeb Bush, uh, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Carly Fiorina, and, um, of course, Scott Walker, who seems to be the Koch brothers' favorite candidate of all of them. But those five candidates combined in the last Monmouth poll are only getting 28% of the vote. That's all five of them combined. None of them are above single digits. And the worst of all five is uh, Scott Walker polling at 3% nationally. So um, just, uh, you know, the Koch brothers are... Uh, maybe trying to buy an election, but right now uh, their money isn't going very far because the voters on the Republican side are, are basically saying, we don't want any of this. We want, uh, I guess, you know, we want somebody way out there on the fringes. or um, You know, and I, I don't think we should take any particular delight that Donald Trump and Ben Carson are running one and two in the polls on the Republican side because obviously both men would be, I think, dangerous should they ever become president. I don't think either one would be a good choice, even by Republicans' low standards. But but at some level, I think it should be a source of amusement that for all their efforts to buy the loyalty of Republican political candidates and to sort of have a puppet up there that would do their bidding, the Koch brothers are being shut out by these two wacky insurgents who aren't exactly uh, dancing to the beat of the Koch brothers' drums. Um, they're doing their own thing. I mean, uh, Donald Trump is mostly self-funded so far. And, and Ben Carson, uh, whatever else you can say about him, most his funding has been heavily reliant on smaller, small dollar donors. So he so far hasn't been racking in the donations for millionaires, but rather from, you know, small-time contributors who give, you know, 50 or 100 bucks. Um, somewhat similar to the, um, very different ideologically, but similar in terms of the type of donors he relies on somewhat to uh, Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side where where it's not people with deep pockets that are funding the campaign. It's a bunch of uh, bunch of donors, you know, middle class people or, or people with more limited means giving small amounts of money, but there's quite a few of them. Um, less so for Carson than for Sanders, but but if there is a Republican analog to Sanders in terms of how his campaign is being funded, Carson comes the closest, although, again, with a very different ideology and point of view. Um, having said all that, I, I guess um, uh, our interview is going to be about uh, 49 minutes long, so I should probably get to it. But, again, um, the interview is with Mike McCabe, who is the author of Blue Jean Nation, uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Tonight, our guest on Liberal Six uh, Radio is uh, Mike McCabe. He's the author of the book, Blue Jeans in High Places, The Coming Makeover of American Politics, and so we're really excited to have him on. Um, how are you doing, Mike? Real good. Uh, thanks for having me. Wonderful. Great. And uh, and uh, just uh, to give us our listeners an overview, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and and who you are? Well, I'm a Wisconsin native uh, and and uh, was born and raised on a dairy farm here. So I uh, you know, I come from a farm family and really never left the farm, but I did go away to school and was t- 
trained as a journalist at the University of Wisconsin, uh, and went on to to work in a variety of capacities in or around Wisconsin politics, and and uh, spent 15 years as the director of a group called the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, which is a watchdog group that specializes in tracking the money in in state elections and and working for reforms aimed at making people matter more than money in politics. And and uh, uh, very recently uh, ended my tenure as director of the Democracy Campaign to start up a new venture, uh, just launched a, a new group called Blue Jean Nation that is aimed at, also at, at trying to address the the uh, uh, the problems with our democracy and and work to uh, to improve the way our political system works, but ta- going from a somewhat different angle than I than I did uh, in during my work for 15 years uh, at the head of the democracy campaign. Mike, this is Naomi, and I wanted to uh, again thank you for coming and joining us. Tell us about the book that you just wrote. Was there anything very specific that led you to write it was it a work has it been a work in progress for many years or was it something that just kind of triggered you where you said okay i i need to write this i need to get all my thoughts down and and put it into book form well i never set out to be a a published author and i made it to the age of 54 without without uh uh writing a book and and i but yet i i guess i reached a point where where I felt as though we had reached a, a real crossroads, and and uh, and, and it, it, the book was was years in the making, although it only took me a few months to write. But but really, the the thinking that went behind it uh, had been taking shape for some time. The book is really about how to get citizens back in the driver's seat of our government at a time when both major parties are failing us, uh, and. And uh, in the book specifically uh, looks at at how both major parties are failing us, what has gone haywire with the political system, and and how past generations responded to eerily similar conditions and successfully were able to change the political landscape. And so, you know, Blue Jeans in High Places is really about trying to draw from those lessons from history and 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 explores how we might be able to adapt some of those strategies to modern conditions and current circumstances to be able to repeat the kind of change that that past generations were able to bring about and to be honest with you I, I guess I reached the point of of wanting to write this particular book because I, I you know I I was thinking a lot about insanity to be honest with you you know the saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a mm-hmm. different outcome and I, I loved the work I was doing at the Wisconsin democracy campaign and I and I, uh, I feel that that work is incredibly important and I could have easily done it for another 15 years but I had to look myself in the mirror and and ask whether doing that for another 15 years would would be enough of a game changer would it get us to a better place would it would it help get wisconsin out of the rut that we're in and my answer was no that that we have to try something new we have to we have to do some some things differently and and what's really central to blue jeans and high places is the idea that that 
past generations, when they made landscape-altering change, the first step that they took was was discarding old labels, shedding old political identities and political vocabulary, and fashioning themselves a new identity. And that was the first step on multiple occasions that citizens took. They they sort of reinvented themselves, and they and they reinvented political language, and and they built movements with these new brands that they came up with, and and they were able to to dramatically alter the political landscape and improve conditions for themselves. And I think we face another point in time where where uh, the labels are the old labels are failing us. The the old political vocabulary isn't working anymore and and the major parties as they exist today aren't working anymore. And I, and by the way, I'm not one of those people who believes that the two parties are really just one. I'm I'm not one of those people who thinks there's one body and two wings. I I see really distinct differences between the two major parties, but they're both failing us. Uh, They're failing us in different ways, but they are failing us. And in the book, one of the things I'd, I'd say is that we've got one party that's scary and another that's scared. The interesting thing about that line is I've, repeated it in dozens and dozens of presentations that I've given uh, uh, since the book came out, and I've yet to have anybody in, in any audience ask me which one is which. People seem to instinctively relate to that, and, it, and, and they know exactly what I'm talking about without me actually, without me actually going any further and, and describing it. And, and uh, that's telling. That says a lot about about the the common understanding that people have about how our political system is is currently failing us. I I want to jump in real quick and uh, read a quote that that uh, you have uh, when you launched the um, your Blue Jean Nation. You say the goal is not to create a third party, but to fashion a first party. It intends to work within the two-party system to ensure that at least one party is truly dedicated to doing the will of the people, either by replacing current parties with new alternatives or by transforming the existing parties. That's pretty. That's a pretty hefty goal. Can you talk to us about what, where you see, you say that you feel like the, both parties are failing us, and I completely agree. But tell me, how? where do you start? I think that's a lot of frustration with people especially the 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 um the non voters that say, you know, I'm done. I'm not gonna vote anymore because nothing nothing gets put through. There's just constant division, there's constant gridlock, nothing gets you know, what I what I want, what's important to me, no one's hearing me. No one's hearing us. So why even vote? So how do you like you say, transform that? How do you get people back involved? Is it by getting the common people involved? Is that you start for like you say in the with the blue jeans Americans, the common American, to get back into politics? Well, there's that old saying in politics that all politics is local. But mm-hmm. I, I think we've really stopped believing that in our hearts. And when people think about getting involved, they think about joining some national group, or they think about, they think about, um, you know, they, they, they don't think about trying to, engage with and influence their neighbors. They don't think about about 
starting movements in their own backyards. They think that they have to join some online venture that that is that's just started up, or they, you know, they, the idea of engagement now is is like clicking like on some Facebook page, and 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 you know, I, I think a fundamental premise of of both my book and and Blue Jean Nation is that is that people need to be able to rediscover their own capacity for involvement and their own capacity for influence where they live. And I think it starts there. It starts locally and it builds out. And and you know, and I think what we have to also become reacquainted with is our own history. Because people who came before us faced very similar conditions in the past where the political system was failing them. They were feeling politically homeless. They were feeling as though uh, the major parties were, were not representing their wishes. And they, and they fashioned themselves new identities, and they, and they built movements that forced those major parties to either adapt or perish. And I write about the birth of the Republican Party, uh, in the book, and you know that the, the birthplace is actually a little white schoolhouse in Ripon, Wisconsin, and and just over two dozen people gathered in that in that schoolhouse way back in the mid 1850s, and they were feeling politically homeless. They went into that school, calling themselves Democrats or Whigs. The Whig Party was one of the two major parties in America at the time. Some were feeling so disconnected and so alienated they were calling themselves things like free soilers or abolitionists. And, of course, this was the time of slavery, and there was a growing abolitionist movement, yet both major parties had made their peace with slavery. Both of them were were okay with slavery. And so there were an awful lot of people feeling politically homeless. They go into that schoolhouse calling themselves all these different things and they came out of the schoolhouse united in calling themselves republicans they all discarded their old labels they fashioned themselves a new identity and in that instance that new that citizen movement uh, ended up driving a major party to extinction the whig party ceased to exist because it refused to adapt to where the people were moving now a little over a generation later a 35-year-old attorney from here in Wisconsin was offered a bribe to fix a legal case. And he was offered that bribe by a leader in his own party. He was a Republican, and a Republican leader bribed him to fix a legal case. He was so offended by that that he decided he could no longer in good conscience call himself a Republican. He felt, in, now we're at the end of the 19th century, he felt that his party had grown corrupt. That it had fallen in with the with 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 the big money interests and the the robber barons, the the timber and railroad interests, and and he he decided to start calling himself a progressive. And of course, that attorney was Robert M. La Follette, who came to be known as Fighting Bob La Follette. And and La Follette and his allies built a progressive movement that ended up 
forcing both major parties to change. And, and, and it was fascinating. Both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party ended up embracing the progressive identity and, and helping to enact progressive policies and ushering in this progressive agenda. And you had Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, running as a progressive on the Republican ticket for president. And then some years later, Woodrow Wilson ran as a progressive on the Democratic ticket. In, in that instance, both major parties adapted to this this new threat on the political landscape but in both cases citizens came together threw off old labels fashioned themselves a new identity and and used that to to compel the major parties to come back to the people well here we are now at a, at a point where it's clear that both major parties are serving the few at the expense of the many most people don't believe they're really being represented. Most people don't believe their voices are being heard, and most people don't believe that their votes matter for much. You're, you're absolutely right when people say that they, they just don't think that their votes do much good. And, and so a lot of people are checking out. But what past generations did when they were feeling that way is they, they used these strategies. I call it first-party organizing rather than third-party organizing, because we have a two-party system in America. They, they used the, these strategies to force the major parties to come back to them. And, and I think that's our challenge today, and it's a big challenge. But, but I, I, I think it starts with challenging some of the old labels, the old vocabulary, the old political identities that we've all sort of grown up with and we've all, we've, we all use through force of habit and, and, and sort of dusting off these practices that past generations used with great success. So I'm not really suggesting anything that, that's untested or uh, is brand new. I, I'm, I'm actually suggesting that we try to adapt to the 21st century some proven practices that actually did bring about a breathtaking, landscape-altering change uh, in the past. Uh, you know, and people who were poorer than us and less educated than us were able to pull it off. And I, I refuse to believe that there's something different about us or wrong with us that makes us incapable of making change in our time. Now, how do you see, like, for example, what labels do you think we need to throw off today and what lessons from some of the past movements you talked about could we use to take action today? Well, I, I call myself a commoner. That, that's the label of my choosing. And I, I call myself a commoner for a variety of reasons. I, first, I'm, a, I'm the son of dairy farmers, so it, it's hard to imagine what a son of farmers is but a commoner i mean that's who i am but but then secondly i choose that word because i of what i want i i want there to be a heck of a lot more common sense in government i want the common good to be far less uncommon than it is today and i want i want a lot less dividing and conquering and we've seen a lot of that with scott walker as our governor here in wisconsin we've seen a lot of dividing and conquering uh, and, and really uh, pitting people who have a great deal in common against each other, people who could and should be united are being divided and conquered, and, and we need a whole lot more searching for common ground. And, and, 
and you know when I think about common sense and common good and, and common ground, that that's why I also call myself a commoner. And then and then uh, the obvious thing is that I call myself a commoner to distinguish myself from the royals of American politics. There there are there is a political royalty that has grown up in in our in our system in our day. And and there are a whole lot of commoners out there who feel like they're not being listened to and they're not being represented because a few are dictating uh, what government should do, and and that's being done at the expense of the many. And so that that's the label I choose. And when when people ask me, well, are you a liberal or are you a conservative? My honest answer is that I'm a mutt. Uh, and, and I think most normal people are mutts. They're, they're, only in the political world do people pass themselves off as 100% liberal or 100% conservative. Most people are are a complicated mixture of a lot of things. They might be conservative on one issue, moderate on something else, liberal on most things, or they might be conservative about most things. But they're but they actually are liberals on some issues. And 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 in reality, we're mutts. And and so I, I think. I think what's happened is that is that there are certain labels that that are plastered on people that actually are those labels are failing us and one of the things I write about in the book is how the word, words like liberal and conservative don't mean what they used to mean. They don't even mean what the what today's dictionaries say that they mean. You take the word liberal, it comes from the Latin root uh, a word that, that has Latin origins, and and it it's the same Latin root as the word liberty. It it means freedom among other things, and yet if you think about people who self-describe as conservatives, they think that liberals are anti-freedom. They think they're the pro-freedom ones. Then you think about the word conservative, and and it it shares common roots with words like conservation and conserve and people who self-describe as liberals look at today's conservatives and say they're not for conserving anything they they go to their party convention and they say drill baby drill they want to burn every last drop and and they they fail to see how they're for conserving anything and and so today's liberals think that they're the pro-conservation ones and, and so you know those words those labels would be comical if it wasn't so politically debilitating because what happens is people slap these labels on people and it ends conversations and it, it, it divides people who actually have a great deal in common. So one of the things in the book that I do, I devote a whole chapter to something called thinking vertically. You know, we're, we've been trained to think horizontally, who's on the left, who's on the right, who's liberal, who's conservative. And a really magical thing happens if you flip that political spectrum up on its head and think vertically instead of horizontally. If you think about who's on top, who's on the bottom, who are the royals of American politics and who are the commoners, that has great potential to unite people who currently see each other as enemies. And and, and I that's what I mean when I talk about liberating ourselves from from some of the the ways that we've been trained to think and talk about politics. And and uh, and and that's that's really what's at the in the guts of of blue jeans in high places is is you know encouraging people to stop thinking so horizontally and think vertically instead. And I and I'm not just talking about who has the most money and who has the least, 
but who has the most political power and who has the least, whose voices are strongest and whose voices are not being heard or are muted. And, and when you think about politics in that way, it becomes real clear who the royals are and who the commoners are. And actually, uh, in some cases, people who've had an inclination maybe to vote Republican and, and others who have, an, have had an inclination to vote Democrats would, would find that they actually have a great deal in common because they're, they're commoners and, and, they're, and they're, they are effectively politically homeless. They are not being represented. Their voices are not being heard. And, and, and they, they, ha, they could be more united than they are today, but for the way we've been trained to think and talk about politics. Uh, Mike, you bring up some great, Great points. I'm nodding my head here with everything that you're saying. I want to read one more quote from you and then uh, ask. I have a follow-up question. You say, quote, we are not starting a third party. We are neither elephant nor ass, but we recognize that America has a two-party system, and we plan to work within that system to get the parties truly working for all of us and not just a favored few who are well-connected politically. Our end goal is to make concern for the common good far less uncommon. To reach that goal, we will work every day against political privilege. So I'm totally on board with everything that you're saying. Um, I I am very guilty of being uh, thinking horizontally and labeling myself as a liberal. Um, and you are right on when you, you're spot on when you say with the labels of liberal conservative that does stop dialogue it kind of stops it in our in our tracks there are a few of uh, friends that that i have that label themselves as conservative but then they'll tell me well you know what i i don't feel so far off from what you feel i i do think that we there needs to be more social uh justice or there has to be more income equality for example but i am really fiscally conservative so that's why i lean more towards the republican party for example I get what you're saying, and, and I think that that dialogue can happen on a local level, but the people that are in a political power now, how do we get them to get on board with this? How do we, you know, knock on the window and get their attention that this is, this is a change, that we're not working maybe so hard to label one another, but to get, I think, like you said, we do have a lot of people that will say, yes, I do agree with parts of this. You know, we're, cons we're cafeteria uh, politicians or cafeteria voters. We like this, we like that, we like this from this and that from that. But how do we get the people that we're voting for to feel that from us, to, to know that we're holding them accountable in a different way? I, I think eventually there needs to be uh, a, a threat to the, to the uh, establishment politicians. There has to be constructive discomfort created. When change has come in the past, it's because citizens created movements and politicians realized that the people were heading in a particular direction, and they faced a choice. They either had to join with the people, they had to go where the people were, or they, or they could choose to resist that and to try to, to weather the storm or, or wait out these movements. In the case of the Whig Party, uh, they stubbornly refused to adapt and eventually were driven to extinction. During the Progressive Era, both major parties realized that the people moved and they weren't where the major parties were anymore 
and they decided to join the people. They decided to enact progressive agendas. And and I think what that what what has to happen is that is that uh, is establishment politicians need to be challenged in their own party primaries. They need to be they need to be they need to be challenged in their own communities by people who have broken away from the labels that those politicians wear. Uh, people need to need to distinguish themselves from the from the political establishment in a in a provocative way and and show the politicians we no longer are in your camp and when that happens it 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 forces politicians to change their behavior and i confess that one of the things that got me thinking about all of this was the tea party movement what what struck me when i first started watching the tea party movement was that this is not a party at all this is just mm-hmm. a brand that is being used to take over a party yes. and and yeah. and you know then i started digging more into the into the history of the genesis of the tea party and i quickly encountered the Koch family mm-hmm. and they played a very instrumental role in building the tea party and funding it and 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 then I, I realized that, you know, one of the Koch brothers was once on a presidential ticket. He ran mm-hmm. for, he was the vice presidential nominee of the Libertarian Party in 1980. And his ticket was running against Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan wasn't subservient enough to their interests to gain support. <laughs> they ran against Ronald Reagan, and of course they got their heads handed to them. And I think a light bulb went on for the Cokes at that moment. They realized, you know, it doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You run outside that two-party system. It's not going to end well. And they spent over 10 years designing and bu- building the to the point of launching the Tea Party movement. And they have heavily bankrolled it. And And you have to admit they have been able to knock off enough mainstream establishment Republican politicians, including Eric Cantor, House mm-hmm. Republican leader, with these insurgent candidacies in party primaries. And, and they've, they've scared so many other Republicans that they basically have made the Republican Party far more subservient to the interests of the Kochs and other similar interests than the, than the party ever was. And and you know they've they have changed the Republican Party. Now they 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 did all this for incredibly self-serving reasons. That got mm-hmm. me to thinking. Well, might it be possible for ordinary citizens to use the same approach for a much more public-spirited purpose? And as I went back more through history, I realized that actually common people had done just that on multiple occasions. And what was the progressive movement but an example of people? basically taking over parties. Uh, and when the smoke all cleared, there wasn't a progressive party that was a major force on the American landscape. There, there weren't three major parties or four major parties. There were still two major parties, but both of those major parties had been transformed. Both of them had embraced the progressive identity and had helped enact progressive policies. And, and so I I, I, but I confess that it was it was really this very recent phenomenon of the Tea Party movement that made me think, well, you know, it, might it be possible to do what the Tea Party did for for the common good, for for a, a constructive purpose rather than what I think is a very destructive uh, force in the Republican Party. It's it's driving the Republican Party to to bankruptcy, if you ask me. 
Right. I I I agree with that. Um, I want to jump in first before I hand it back to Keith. I'm sorry. I'm just so like I I, I love this conversation. Tell me, I I totally agree with what you're saying. Do you think that there's um, I know you don't want to be called a, a, a party. So are you are you trying to start? Are you putting out notice to the two parties that are labeled? Okay, from from here on out, this is this is where we're headed. The voters are headed in this direction. You say that you you didn't write the book as an academic exercise. You quote, "I wrote it as a blueprint, and blueprints are useless unless hammer hits nail. It's time to start hammering." So is that pretty much serving notice that you know you're, you're trying to get um, people behind you saying, "Look, it doesn't have to be black or white. You know, gray sometimes works also." Well, yeah, you know, I, I didn't write the book as an academic exercise because I'm no academic. I, I wouldn't be qualified to write an, uh, you know, an academic book. I did write it as a blueprint, and Blue Jean Nation is 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 the thing that has grown out of out of those ideas. Uh, you know, we we just uh, launched Blue Jean Nation about a month ago. Uh, it's on the web at bluejeannation.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, but but you know, it, we. I'm from Wisconsin. This is this is the place I know, and so I start here. And you know, I can tell you that next uh, next month, uh, in in early June, there there there's the state Democratic Party convention, and I can tell you there's going to be uh, quite a few delegates there who are going to be holding uh, Bougie Nation banners, are sending a message to their own party that their own party needs mm-hmm. to change. And, uh, and and that's at their initiative, not mine. Uh, there are party delegates who've decided to embrace this identity and use it within their own party to try to send a message that that their own party needs to change its ways. That that is exactly why an outfit like Blue Jean Nation was established was to give people some tools to use to leverage change in in their own parties in in their own neighborhoods and communities and and uh and and so we start here but it it but it it can spread anywhere uh uh you know but in the past when when you had these first party movements that were trying to get at least one of the parties to come to the people how it ends up how it ends up unfolding really depends on the on the response of the parties. The Whigs and the Democrats stubbornly resisted uh, back in the days of slavery. Slavery, they they refused to change their ways. Turns out the Whigs were demolished, and this new Republican Party replaced the Whigs. In the Progressive era, people m- were on the move. And both major parties realize they better get to the front of that parade and grab a flag or or, or, or grab a drum, because otherwise they were going to get trampled. And both major parties changed dramatically. So it, you know, it, it ended up the, the those people who started calling themselves Republicans in that little white schoolhouse in Ripon, Wisconsin, uh, ended up you know what they ended up building. A couple of dozen people started talking. And what ended up happening was you, you actually had the emergence of a, of a newly named major party in America. It totally depends on the response of the major parties. But, but I think where we start is with the, with the operating assumption that the political system today is broken and is failing us. 
but yet, but yet we institutionally have a two-party system. It's really difficult. Our, our system actively discriminates against effective third-party organizing and, and third-party third involvement in our elections. So we, we start from the premise that we have a two-party system. We need to work within that system to drive change, and then, then we will see how the major parties respond. It, I, it's conceivable, given how disgusted people are at the moment with the condition of politics, it's conceivable that one or both of the major parties may not exist in their current form in 20 or 30 years. I think we're at one of those turning points again where where people have to sort of reinvent politics and 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 uh because it's what's what's happening now isn't working for the great mass of people in our country. Uh, but will the major parties eventually pick up on that citizen unrest and and adapt or evolve or will they be like the Whigs? If they if they play it like the Whigs I think one or both of the major parties may well cease to exist in their current form uh, over the course of the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And certainly in Wisconsin, you're living in interesting times, and I know yeah. with Sal Walker as governor and, and oh, of course, the failed recall effort and stuff, are there lessons so that the rest of the country can learn from what is happening in Wisconsin and maybe things, lessons that even the people in Wisconsin can learn for the next battle ahead? Well, I, I think for those of us here in Wisconsin, it has reinforced the fact that pendulums swing and that times change. Uh, we have at times been a progressive hotbed, uh, a, a laboratory of progressivism. Wisconsin has had a reputation uh, for most of my lifetime as a, as a place that it was a beacon of clean and open and honest government and, and progressive politics. But, you know, shortly before I was born, uh, Wisconsin was a one-party state under Republican rule, and Joe McCarthy was our United States senator. And there were fewer Democrats in the state legislature than there are today. And, and so Wisconsin was a, a one-party state, was, was a, a very reactionary state, uh, electing this red-baiting, communist-hating demagogue, Joe McCarthy, to represent our home in Washington D.C., and and then change occurred that turned Wisconsin back into a two-party state, and and really created uh, this reputation for for progressive politics. And now we've taken a turn back toward the days of the McCarthy era, and and uh, in many respects, we you know we've turned back so far that we're really uh, revisiting. Uh, the Gilded Age. I think we're we're now sort of reliving. We're, we're going through a new Gilded Age, and and um, and of course, what that suggests to me is that uh, remember the Gilded Age produced the progressive movement, <laughs> and and the 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 robber barons, the dominance of the timber and railroad interests in Wisconsin, and Standard Oil, and the Rockefellers, and the Carnegies, and the Vanderbilts, their dominance nationally gave rise to the progressive movement that ended up overcoming those interests and, and, and enacting all kinds of, of, of uh, progressive reforms. 
Well, now we're up against the Cokes and the Walton family of Walmart, and we're up against Goldman Sachs and, and the, the huge interests on Wall Street. And, you know, we, we face remarkably similar conditions to those faced by people in the, in the 1890s. And, and, uh, and, of course, the lesson is that what was happening in the 1890s gave birth to the to the to really breathtaking progressive reform in the early 20th century and and uh, we we uh I think we can take comfort from that history we can draw inspiration from it because we don't face anything today that hasn't been faced before and overcome by people who came before us and and uh, and and so we really don't have to make history here we just have to repeat history and and uh I, I, that that's what what I'm dedicated to working toward here in Wisconsin for starters, and I and I hope that that this can spread beyond our borders because I don't think anything that I've said is unique to Wisconsin. These are conditions we're living through. Uh, we're living through sort of a new McCarthy era. We're living through a new Gilded Age, but that has to sound awfully familiar to people living outside of Wisconsin. Uh, those are conditions that I think can be found in, in every part of our country. Mike, I want to ask one last question. I I agree with you. I'm just trying to wrap my head around bringing the bo- both parties together, working for the common good rather than the privileged few, which I I am on board with. So, so do do the do the parties have to sharpen their ideologies? Do they have to get back to their individual cores because there there are there are differences now like you say we are a two-party system it doesn't work you know not being a two-party system but how what and and just you know i understand you want to be you know a one party not labeled you know one or the other right or left and and i i agree with that but how how do you get that i mean how do you get the two parties to realize you know, I, I agree with some of that you say, and yes, I agree with some that you say. How do you mix the two, or or are they too diluted, or what? What? Where? Where does the problem really lie? Well, you know, I, I, first of all, let me clarify. Uh, when I talk about a first party movement, I'm not talking about a one party movement. I'm not. My goal is not to have one party. My my right, goal right. is to have at at least one party that reconnects with the people, and that will authentically do the people's will. What we've got now is, is two major parties in, in different ways and for different reasons. We've got two parties that are serving the few at the expense of the many. And we need at least one party to start serving the many. And, and so, uh, you know, what the movement seeks to do is create enough constructive discomfort within at least one of the major parties to make that party change its ways. If one of the parties does change its ways and reconnects meaningfully with the people, that will force the other major party to adapt to that change. Because if they, if they remain static, if they remain uh, just cemented in their current practices, they will be demolished. And, and that's that's what has happened in the, in the past. The, you know, the progressives first were successful in in getting the Republican Party with people like Teddy Roosevelt and Bob La Follette to to drive reform. But eventually, Woodrow Wilson was running as a progressive on the Democratic ticket for president. You know, he he and his party came along for the ride as well. Back to the days of slavery, these new 
Republicans, these people who had fashioned themselves a new identity, ran into very stiff resistance in both parties. The Whigs were particularly resistant, and it ended up resulting in the Whigs going away and, and, this, and, 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 and a major party now being called the Republican Party. When the smoke all cleared, America still had a two-party system. We still had two major parties that were dominant forces on the landscape. It's just that one of them had been replaced by, by this new force. And, and I, nobody can have a good enough crystal ball to know how the parties will respond and, and how it will all play out. My gut tells me that it's the Democratic Party initially that is most ripe for, for this kind of change. I think the Republican Party will be the last to to uh, reconnect meaningfully with the masses. I think that, but but eventually, if if the Democratic Party truly did come back to the people and start authentically serving the many and instead of just the few, the Republicans would have to adjust to that. They would have to respond, and and that's what creates system change in in our in our political arrangement is when is when citizens compel that kind of discomfort within the major parties and and I, I think the first step is for us to sort of reacquaint ourselves with our own capacity to make change and our own capacity to to innovate and and to sort of reinvent ourselves politically and that that alone will cause uh, the major parties, it will, co- it will cause quite a stir within the major parties. And over the course of time, it will it will compel the parties to change their ways. Yeah, and I think, um, um, like I could conceive of a possibility. I, I mean, it's hard to know how history plays out, but it, it seems to me that part of what the Republican Party is successful at right now with the Tea Party movement and other things is that they have a lot of common people voting for them without realizing they're basically voting for the interests of the Koch brothers, but by by using the old right-left labels and by sometimes painting yep. the Democrats as these elitists, and not yep. completely without reason, because to some way the Democrats, because they're running scared, are are doing too much on behalf of Wall Street or Goldman Sachs and others. So it makes it, I think, easy for... Republicans to convince sort of conservative-leaning commoners, socially conservative commoners in places like Kentucky and Wisconsin and West Virginia, that that you know that they're the party looking out for the common people, or at least that they're better than the Democrats. But I I think it's conceivably possible if if the um, sort of populist wing of the Democratic Party, maybe the Elizabeth Warren wing, if you want to call it that, or something. Um, made enough noise and started electing enough candidates that they might get enough groundswell of support from common people to win enough elections that the Republicans would be standing out there losing a lot and saying, "Well, gosh, we, you know, we got to do something to change. We're not getting, we're not getting vote, votes from ordinary people, and we're just not winning any elections. So we have to modify our platform." So I, I see, you know, I see how that kind of the historical precedents could play out where the Republican Party eventually, or both parties for that matter, either have to adapt if they want to survive as a viable political party or else go the way of the Whigs. Oh, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I call the Republican Party the scary party 
because this is the party that used to be the party of Abraham Lincoln. It used to be the party of Teddy Roosevelt. It used to be the party of Dwight Eisenhower. It used to be a party dedicated to creating opportunity for all, and now it's a party mm-hmm. dedicated to serving the rich. It, it is slavishly devoted to serving the rich. But, but they've been very skillful in painting the Democrats as a very elitist, out-of-touch party. And, and I think the fact that the Democrats have been a scared party that they have been unwilling to forcefully stand up to Republican ideology and Republican policies. And they've, they have often sort of tried to pass themselves off as Republican light. Um, they have, they've been such a mm-hmm. feeble opposition that that actually makes it possible for the Republican Party to become increasingly scary. If the Democratic Party finds a spine and, and finds, it sort of rediscovers uh, some chutzpah, and and begins to and begins to really off make a better offer to common people who who currently feel that you know and I I run into an awful lot of people like this in Wisconsin, my hometown voted ninety percent for Scott Walker, so I know I know people very well who are voting for someone who is doing the bidding of the Koch brothers. And these are poor, Clark County, where I grew up, is one of the five poorest counties in Wisconsin. And, it, and my hometown went 90% for Scott Walker in the November election. But I think they feel as though the Democrats don't stand for anything and that the Democrats aren't doing anything for them. And so they might as well go with the party that says it's for limited government. And they, they figure if government's not going to do anything for us, then we might as well keep it as small as possible, and that means voting for somebody like Scott Walker. When the Democrats start actually making them a better offer and saying, we, we have a way to make your lives better, to make your communities stronger, to help your areas prosper more, um, the, places like where I grew up used to send Democrats to the state capitol. They used to elect Democrats, and now they are, th- those counties are solidly red because of a scared party, because of the feeble opposition that the Democrats offer to, against the Republicans. They, they actually, people slightly rep- prefer the Republicans, even though the Republicans uh, have become a very scary party that is dedicated to serving the rich. That, that suggests to me there's an opening, an opportunity for a new politics to emerge, but it, it's not going to come from the party establishments. It's going to it's going to come from the citizenry. I would love to have continue this conversation for another hour. I'm so enamored right now. <laughs> yeah, we might have to have Mike on again sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd be happy to yeah, do I, that. I I yeah, very interested in in everything you have to say. I think it's um you know compelling argument and and something that I think a lot of people can get on board behind because it's so important that we take back our our government and make it responsive to the people again. And, and on that note, I guess we're running close to uh, our time here, but uh, um, where can listeners go for more information on your um, on your book and, and maybe where to, where they can order the book or where they can follow you on social media? Well, the book is, is available on Amazon.com. It's available uh, also directly through the publisher, which is a, a, a small, independent, Wisconsin-based publisher called Little Creek Press. So they can go to littlecreekpress.com and order it directly from the publisher. Um, the book is Blue Jeans in High Places, the, the Coming Makeover of American Politics. And, and the outgrowth from that book is Blue Jean Nation, which is at bluejeannation.com. It's also on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, at Blue Jean Nation, 
and and so uh, you know people can can go there and 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 find out more and and uh and give us more of a look and i'm hoping that these ideas are ideas that people can take and and use in their own backyards to start pulling people together in new ways and and uh and creating change thank you so much for for coming on i'm glad that i stumbled across you um, and I don't even remember which uh, which article I was reading, but I saw your name and I saw the link and I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. And I clicked on it and and I'm so glad that we were able to connect with you because it has been incredibly refreshing. Um, I think it's what most Americans want. We just want to move forward. We just want everybody. To <laughs> we really just want everybody to work together for the common good. I don't. I I really feel it in my heart. Everybody just wants to stop this constant gridlock and rhetoric and divisiveness and the, the stalemates that we run into. We just want to, you know, move forward and we want everyone to be prosperous and everyone to have a fair, uh, you know, chance and for everyone to have that level playing field. And I think this definitely absolutely moves us in the right right direction. Well, I just wanted to thank you again, Mike, and, and, uh, and really appreciated the interview and thank you so much for all your hard work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Mike McCabe, author of Blue Jeans in High Places. I think at the beginning of this uh, lead-in, I said author of Blue Jean Nation, but Blue Jean Nation is, of course, uh, the name of the website, and the actual book is Blue Jeans in High Places. But in any case, I think an instructive and and uh, um, interesting interview and, and certainly a lot of good ideas about perhaps how we can reclaim our politics in this country. Um, on that note, I guess uh, we'll wrap it up for this week. Again, next week we should have on uh, John B. Diamond, author of Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. And the following week we will have on uh, James Kilgore, who is author of Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. And uh, so for our listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we certainly appreciate your support and interest in our show, and uh, we look forward to having you listen to us again next week. Uh, until then, I uh, encourage everybody to be kind to your neighbor, and uh, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll catch you again in, the, in a week. <laughs>